Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. February 6, 2022, episode 204, Setting Up Shop. Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Beekeeper's Corner. My name is Kevin England and, you know, I am happy to connect once more with my friends in beekeeping. I am well and have taken a bit of a break and now seems as good a time as any to come back to the podcast and get things going again. Not much has changed around here, still plugging away at work and keeping busy with this and that. I will share that I have been using some of the time off to reconnect with the sim racing world, and I'm personally back to racing online, broadcasting in some esports events here and there. One thing about gaming, to be good at it, you have to do it, and I find that I have a lot of catch-up to do to be a successful sim racer, I've been running quite a few laps, which has taken me away from this from a bit, but also allowed me to clear my head, get re-energized, focus on different things. I let that happen for winter, but we are weeks away from spring, and it's time to start that pivot for spring preparations for beekeeping, and well, here I am, taking that first step to get back in the groove by coming to say hello to everyone and tell you what's going on. So what is going on? Well, there's going to be a theme to this episode concerning setting up a business. We finally decided, after a decade plus, to formalize things for our future and form an LLC to encompass our beekeeping activities. Primarily, this is going to help us legitimize our desire to sell honey, but it also opens a door for expanding the podcast, selling products of the hive, maybe queens and nukes, and, well, the world is our oyster felt like it was time, and in this episode, I'm going to talk about a few of the foundational steps and complications that have been part of our travels over the past few months. And this is something else that has been going on behind the scenes while I've been away. I have a notion to share, and that is, if you're not thinking about starting a business, have no desire, will this be of interest to you? I'm going to go out on a limb and admit that, for some of you it might not, but yet I do think there is something everyone would benefit from through the exposure of it. In the back of your mind, I think there would be a curiosity and a sensibility when looking at the world, and you don't even know that yet, to know what's involved. Let me explain that. In particular, you cannot help but deal with topics that are in and around doing business in the beekeeping world. At minimum, if you produce honey simply for yourself, someone inevitably is going to ask you, can they buy some honey from you? How do you respond to that? We've had that particular scenario dozens of times since we've been beekeepers. I also think there's some merit in knowing what investment your peers have made when you learn that they are in some sort of beekeeping business. And yeah, maybe that's a rationalization, and I only hope what I present here is at minimum an interesting background into the study of setting up shop. There's going to be little tidbits and morsels that I think you'll find compelling to know. 
Now, the whole episode's not going to be about that. There are a few other things to bring you, so let me give you a quick run-through. Roundtable number one, cutting corners of modification to your hive equipment that you might consider. Roundtable number two, DOA, hive registration, Department of Agriculture, not dead on arrival. Roundtable number three, stupid little things, a short on recycling for smoker fuel. Roundtable number four, neonics, somewhat banned in New Jersey, the trend is growing. Roundtable number five, dysentery, the term of the episode. It's something that's talked about with overwintering, so let's spend a moment to talk about what it is. Talking topics, topic number one, I have labeled this topic cottage cheese. It concerns the latest on the cottage law in New Jersey. Topic two, LLC, a review of some particulars and what it took to apply to be a limited liability corporation. Topic number three to finish, the journey of mead. I'm going to introduce a multi-part feature on my quest to learn how to make mead, and I'm going to take you along with it. That's to round out the episode, a short update for the local hive report, and that will be followed by any closing comments that bubble to the surface. You know, before I get rolling, I simply wanted to take a moment to stop and purposely say, hi, how you doing? I know that there are a lot of folks out there that follow the show, and I've made a lot of friends over the years. In a heartfelt way, I wanted to stop, take a moment, say hi, and express that I hope you're doing well. I am sad to say and recognize that COVID is still present in our everyday lives, and I grieve for the ones we have lost or are not doing well. Bits and pieces of news have come during the period I've been away, and it does resonate with me that we are all probably touched by the state of the world these days, and I just simply wanted to take a moment and wish you well. Okay, pretty ambitious show for a restart, so we best get to it. Roundtable number one, the benefit of cutting corners. This roundtable is about modifying your hive boxes to allow purchase for hive tools and possibly avoid woodenware damage. The goal of continuing education is to learn something on every outing. The first thing you need to consider is to actively participate in sessions for exposure. And I've never been shy about finding meetings, training sessions, outings, and such to participate in. Recently, in getting to the point, I sat in on a Carroll County Beekeepers meeting and took in a presentation by Tristan Bannon on preparing for spring during the winter. Tristan's a fledgling candidate working towards a Master Beekeeper Certificate, and on this occasion he was practicing his presenting skills by going through a number of tips and tasks to consider. As he presented his slides, he came upon a close-up of an upper high body sitting mated to a lower high body, and there was an indentation in one of the corners. The tip, which has its origin with rust sprangle, was to pair off the edge of your box corner to provide purchase for a hive tool. To describe this, let me expand on what it was. Consider that you sat a hive body on a table, and if you were looking at one of the short sides, the adjustment would be to shave off the uppermost corner, or perhaps a better description would be to taper it. Pretend you took a piece of sandpaper affixed to a block, and you started at the point in the corner, and you sanded down about a half inch. 
If you did it with an eye towards sanding symmetrically, you would end up with a triangle and you can employ your personal preference as to how you go about that, whether you want to use a sanding tool or sanding block or so on. If you step back and think about this, you might consider the options top corner versus bottom corner, opposite corners versus one singular corner. There's likely some logic to what you should do. I will postulate, do the upper corner. If you think about the lower corner, the notch would be up and water would sit on the corner below it. If the top corner is tapered, any water that got there would run off the angled surface. And hopefully that translated, it's kind of hard. I happen to be right-handed, so it would make sense to carve off the upper right corner for me. Now my twin is left-handed, so perhaps he might actually consider the upper left-hand corner. At Kevin Moment, Keith uses polyhives, and they have built-in trim for hive tool insertion, so that's really a theoretical example. End of Kevin Moment. As to one or both of the corners, meaning one end of the box and the other end of the box, I suspect well, you might want to do both. You never know the orientation of the box as it gets stacked. And why would you want to have to worry about ensuring that the notch corner is to the back? I guess that's a little bit about how type A you are, but you know, there's something I think about that. I label all my frames and I try to put my frames in facing the same way every single time. That means the box, which is in the front, is always towards the front. So, hmm, maybe there's something to that. An interesting tip, simple and effective, and I've come to know that this tip has at least one origin source, bee culture. There was an article on this tip authored by Ed Simon, published in Bee Culture January 2013. Ed's article referred to this notch technique as gargoyles. And the gargoyles connection was explained that the premise that gargoyles were originally employed to convey water away from the roof of a building. And this prevented water from running down the walls, the side walls of the building. And the reason Ed called this out or made that connection corresponds with what I spoke of earlier. That is, tapered, the water will run off and not collect on the top edge of that box when the notch is pointed down if you did it backwards. One sidebar to this technique is a different spin on the pry damage problem from Hive Tools. The Be Smart Company developed a device called the Pry Point to aid in box separation while not harming woodenware. It's a two-part plastic device that screws to your boxes, one on the top, one on the bottom. And when you set the boxes on top of each other, you create a pry point. <laughs> That's why it's called a pry point, I guess. Um, you insert your hive tool between the two pry points and you're prying against the plastic, which is employing the screw tension into the wood to pry them apart. Some might term this as a gadget looking for a solution, but there's a solution for everyone out there. And I'm sure that some use these things with great success. I could see a problem that would cause me personally not to consider it outright. And that's this pry point hardware would stick out from the side of the box and prevent you from stacking boxes side by side. And that would be a no go for my storage situation in the garage. So I would take a pass on that. 
if you were a two in the backyard hive person and your hives are sitting on the stands all the time and you're not storing your equipment, then I guess that's not a concern for you and this could be a good solution. That article written in 2013 made me wonder if that product was still in the marketplace and yeah, I found them for sale, the pry points on Larry's Backyard Bees. If you want to see what they look like and perhaps make a purchase, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Roundtable number two. Hive registration a short aside about our interaction when registering our apiary for the 2022 beekeeping season. New Jersey laws for beekeeping require Garden State beekeepers to register their hives with the Department of Agriculture. Being a person who's not averse to following instructions, I will state emphatically that I tried over the past couple of years on several occasions to register our hives with no success. There was some problem uh, in the logic of the application, the web application that hampered some beekeepers, and unfortunately we were in that group. Now it seems that in this go-round, that's behind us, and I'm happy to report that things are resolved. A note about the process is that after we registered our apiary, it provided the capability to generate a printable certificate, which I duly saved to the file. It's a good time to remind New Jersey beekeepers, and everyone else for that matter, if this is a state requirement, that beekeepers should be familiar with and comply with the regulations that not only require you to register your hives, but to take some other measures like marking your hives, following stipulations for setbacks and such. The folks who are your state apiarists and or your local officials can't really back you up if you don't follow the rule. And, you know, maybe this is the time of year in the wintertime where you could move your hives around and make those adjustments that you've always wanted to get to. To those that are going through the process of registering for New Jersey, one quick important tip. During the registration process, an apiary number is generated and assigned. This unique identifier is an important piece of information with interactions going forward should you need to deal with the Department of Agriculture. The assignment is referred to as an AIS number, and this is an important number to make a note of and keep track of for your annual renewals and another possible interaction that might come your way if you need to deal with the DOA. I know in my past dealings of trying to fix our account with the state, one of the first things they asked was what is your AIS number, which I didn't know at the time was going to be an important indicator. So now you know. Please take the time to register your hives as required by law. And if you need a link, jump over to our show notes for this show. There's a New Jersey Beekeeper Apiary registration link. And there's also a link to the Department of Agriculture Bee Inspection page where you can get up to date on the beekeeping laws and information for New Jersey. Roundtable number three, stupid little things. I'm afraid my mind is full of a collection of someday maybe items that bubble to the surface. And I'm going to share one such idea with you, and you'll know why I call this one stupid little things. When I was in Italy and met with a beekeeper in Fuiji named Giancarlo, I had a fascination about his smoker material. He did something I had never seen before and have not seen since. He rolled up refuse cardboard into a tight bundle and made smoker fuel out of it. 
The impression stuck with me and it led to a practice I use in lighting our wood stove during the winter. If you take everyday cardboard and look closely at its construction, you can see that it has a ribbed structure to it. And while most of the time you fold it up into panels, I have taken to rolling pieces of it with the ribs to make a pseudo cardboard log. Small pieces make long tube-like logs that I can place in our wood stove and stack in between the wood pieces to get the stove started. Sharon has this wonder about me that I could start a fire with a piece of paper and a log and not need anything that resembles kindling. This leads me to say that every winter when I do this, I think back to Giancarlo and his smoker fuel and it takes me off to another tangent. I believe in recycling. I look at everything that goes out the door as trash and think there's something I can make of it and not put it in a landfill. My mantra is if I do not have a specific and tangible plan for it, it has to go lest I be a hoarder. But sometimes it requires me to say I never got to X or Y. And, you know, I go back and I clean things out and I give up the ghost. But there's always some sort of flux of things that I have ideas to do something with. And I have little piles here and there. I guess that's just the way it goes. But, mm, Kevin moment. That reminds me, I have this fish tank hive concept partway done. I'm going to have to put that on the schedule here in winter. And, oh, it would be a good time to finish my hive stool. Hive stool. <laughs> Hive tool holster concept, but I digress. End of Kevin moment. Now, what I'm about to say is one of those peculiar things that it's oddly uncomfortable to talk about, but I always hated throwing away the small cardboard rolls from toilet paper and to some extent paper towels. I do not obsess about this, but I have taken notice that the necessity of life generates a lot of waste. And while we can certainly take steps to add those things to the recycling bin, presents an opportunity by my way of thinking. So in a clandestine kind of way, I've been snatching the rolls and making some smoker fuel pods out of them for the past few months. Each time a roll is finished, I compress the cardboard round into a small flat shape and then stick it inside a tube. Let me say that differently so it makes sense. I take a round cardboard tube and I stick other ones inside of it. I fold the spent tubes into flat shapes and nestle them inside the single vessel until I can't fit anymore. It becomes this dense conglomerate of folded up tubes inside one round tube. When you do this for a while, you get a single cardboard toilet paper tube with layers of other tubes compacted inside. And to my way of thinking, this has the potential to be an interesting fuel source to light and place in your smoker, a la what Giancarlo was doing. Now perhaps this is overthinking it, but let me share a backstory of my way of thinking that made me want to try this. And again, just humor me, stupid little things. My favorite smoker fuel is pine needles. They're the quintessential, nothing is a better fuel, smoker staple. I'll give you that. However, and here it is, I hate to transport pine needles in my vehicle. I don't own a pickup. I have an SUV with carpet in the back. And when I go to place to place, I find that when I get home, inevitably pine needles have woven their way into the carpet fabric in the back of my vehicle. And when you vacuum that space, they don't come out. <laughs> Such a stupid little thing. 
but it annoys me because when I vacuum a carpet, I will spend the time to pluck out every single pine needle out of the fabric with my fingers. Coming back to the cardboard tubes, what if they end up being useful? Could be a possible win-win solution. I can recycle the cardboard and have functional smoker fuel to take on the road. Now don't you judge me on how I overthink things. Maybe this is a weird rationalization, but I kind of like the satisfaction of testing things to learn. It's just in my nature. I'm a creature of experimentation, and come this spring, I'm going to test this and see if I might use this as a practice to adapt. If I find it lacking, then no harm has come of this, and I can return to pitching the spent tubes into the recycle bin. So here's to learning. Roundtable number four, neonics. The first of two legislative notes for this episode, I'm going to talk about the cottage law and the upcoming topic, but for right now, I want to talk about the other bill in play in New Jersey. New Jersey has joined Connecticut, Maryland, Vermont, Massachusetts, and Maine in taking some action to ban the use of neonicotinoids in the state. It's an impactful change for beekeepers and the environment, but it comes with an asterisk. It is not an outright ban on the use of neonics. It was a ban for use in non-agricultural settings. Farmers and those who are in related agricultural pursuits could still use it. Golf courses, gardens, home lawns, and other places where applicable, it's no longer permitted. For beekeepers who believe that neonics are a problem, this is a welcome step and one that has been a long time coming. And when it comes to the farmers and others who use it in the settings that are still permitted, you would hope that they're trained and educated and the label is the law and they're following what they're supposed to do. So, you know, hopefully this will help things out. For me personally, I like and dislike this all at the same time. I'm not normally a fretter, but in this case, I do have trepidation that this can open the door for something worse. If it's not neonics, what else are they going to put into the soup? Primordial ooze of things that kill bugs. Now, maybe the chemical companies will respond with something that is wink, wink, new and improved. Some silver bullet in this time. This is the time they're going to get it right. How tongue-in-cheek can I say that? Again, I suppose it's tinfoil hat logic, and I should consider this a good thing. I'm hoping in a holistic sense it is. But I sure wish I knew what people will begin to pour on their lawns now that this bottle of stuff is no longer on the shelf. You can look in the show notes for a link to an article, New Jersey Assembly Passes Legislation to Limit the Use of Bee-Killing Pesticides. For episode 204. Roundtable number five, dysentery overload. It's a little visit on the term dysentery as it relates to bees. For those of us in temperate zones, it's not uncommon for our bees to be confined inside the hive during cold stretches for long periods of time. During the winter months, bees are nestled together, keeping warm and awaiting the warmer spring days and the times that they can get back to work. Interestingly enough, during those long periods of cold days, they live their days in states of rest, sometimes referred to as torpor, 
and light activity that has them doing some light work, which could include consuming some food. I raise the notion to set the stage for the condition of dysentery as one has to think of what happens to a bee when it consumes honey. We know that honey is a mix of things, sugars, minerals, vitamins, and such. We also know that if we fed our bees a sugar solution, we physically made it from sugar and water. From a simplistic point of view though, in the end it really could be summed up as a mix of liquids and solids. A very short aside, by the way, is that not all honey is created equal. Some variations have a higher percentage of solids, and it's typically perceived that dark-colored honey has more solids than light-colored honey. I personally don't know too much about the scientific notions of those, those assertions, but, you know, it's commonly relayed belief, so I'm just simply going to share that and move on, and perhaps that's a topic for another day. But the really important thing here is liquids and solids. Now, if a bee takes in liquids and solids, they have to give them off at some point. And I want you to think that when we breathe, humans, we exhale liquids in every breath. Think of the fact that in winter, our breaths will fog up your glasses if you wear glasses like I do. Bees do the same thing. And for this little journey, I want you to recognize that part of the liquid, of the liquids and solid consumption, is given off during respiration. But what of the solids? During the confinement period, there's no way for that to be given off. They don't poop inside the hive. They fly off and poop to the exterior. So not until a warm day comes along can the bee do a cleansing flight to unload. Now, amazingly enough, a bee can hold a lot of solids. You know, forgive me, because this is kind of an odd place to be, because we're talking about poop, right? <laughs> yes, yes we are. But the reason we have to discuss this in this manner is that dysentery in bees is kind of akin to too much in storage, and the bee simply needs to void. A quick aside here, unlike the things that we can apply to human anatomy and physiology, to bees, when we try to draw correlations of understanding, dysentery is not one of them. Dysentery in humans, it's a form of infectious disease, usually from a bacteria, but in honey, bees simply need to void the solids as a result of excess buildup. That's what dysentery is. And coming back to the honeybee, a bee can hold a lot of solids. Most literature cites figures around 30 to 40 percent of their total body weight. But in time, a bee will reach a limit and it's just simply going to have to go. When a threshold is reached, a bee will expel the fecal matter inside the hive which does not need a lot of elaboration as to how that can cause issues inside there. But it is a telltale sign of why a bee would defecate. They just simply can't hold it any longer. It's not something that I would say normally takes place. 
nature has provided enough windows of opportunity for a bee to fly out and do a cleansing flight. But there are periods of time, especially in the extreme north, where they just don't get to it, can't get to it. So it's here I can stop and kind of define what dysentery is in bees. It's not really a disease. It's more akin to a condition where a honeybee has an excess amount of fecal matter and it ends up expending in an unconventional way. I could end there and be satisfied that you have a handle on this, but it would be incomplete in the understanding of the signs and symptoms that lead to all these misconceptions and notions about dysentery. Most beekeepers experience the phenomena of dysentery in the form of poop stains in or around the hive. And in presentation, it looks like, and again, sorry for the unpleasant nature of this, bee diarrhea. To make matters worse, there's an aspect of this that is sometimes associated with nosema, or to be more specific and scientific, nosema apis, and I'll explain that. Nozema apis is a single-celled parasite that can get into the bee's abdomen, and in short, when it impacts the bee, it can result in a bloated abdomen, and one of the symptoms is a diarrhea-like discharge. Incidentally, in a side on that, Nozema serrana, the other form of Nozema, does not result in bee diarrhea. So if there is something going on with Nozema, it's Nozema apis. But let's not go there, as this is about dysentery, and I specifically want to draw things out about the misconceptions and connections that dysentery and Nozema are related. I know, I want to warn that I could be confusing you at this point, but stay with me. I'm just about to share an aha moment that brings us all together. So let me put Nozema apis aside for a second and lay out a typical scenario and then we'll follow up on what bee dysentery presents like. Consider a bee has been sequestered in a hive for a long period of time and is right at the threshold of storage. A warm day comes and they can exit the hive and they will do what is normal to a bee, fly a short distance and defecate a.k.a. a cleansing flight. Nice way to say that a bee went out and went poop. Now consider a bee that's sequestered in a hive and the time period for them to do that doesn't come. They eat and store, eat and store, and eventually they're full of liquids and solids and they just simply got to go. This doesn't happen too often and I can't honestly recall ever happening inside of our hives in New Jersey. They've always found that window to go out and do their business, but sometimes they'll pick a place and go right inside the hive. More commonly though, a bee will be holding that large amount of liquids and solids and have absorbed the capacity of water to the threshold. Yeah, I know where they fly out and it simply just expels in a form that we humans might describe as diarrhea discharge. Long, ropey, wet, brownish tinged liquid squirts. Sorry for the graphic nature. In short, when you gotta go, you gotta go. And they really have to go. 
And normally they would fly away from the hive and do their thing and you would be none the wiser. But sometimes when they're at the entrance and they have to warm themselves up and they come up and they're flying around the hive, prepared to fly off to that distance, they circle the hive and let loose. This can be exacerbated by the bee taking a drink prior to flight because they're going to be thirsty and that simple intake of water expands those stored solids and results in the urgency to defecate. In short, the excess of solids swell up and cause the bee to be overladen and upon intake of the water, the discharge described a moment ago results watery mess. But it's not the water, it's the excess solids that's dysentery in bees. And unlike Nosema apis, coming back to that, which can result in bee diarrhea, this one is really just about simple physics. Too much on board and something has to go. Now how about that? We just spent a few moments enjoying talking about the poop habit of our bees and probably learned more than we wanted to consider. But there's a point to all this. It's February. And I promise you that something happens just about this time every year. You'll go outside after an unseasonably warm day on or about this time of year. And you're going to see those yellow streaks on the outside of your hive. And you're going to wonder if there's a problem. Sometimes if the gods align and you get a warm day after a snowstorm, you'll see those streaks will even be more visible. Not only you know, little spots on the outside or top cover of your roof, but all over the place in the snow. Revel in the moment. It's kind of a cool thing to witness. If you're a bee geek, I guess. <laughs> you know, and sometimes it's a minor experience, and other times, quite honestly, it can be a mess. Most times, it's nature. Sometimes the staining or droppings are normal, and sometimes, well, the exterior of the hives and even the insides could be covered, which is no bueno. But, you know, to understand what I'm talking about, it almost looks like somebody mixed up tobacco juice, stuck a paintbrush in it, and stood outside and flinged it all over inside the apiary or inside your hives. It's, it's a mess. If you've ever seen true massive dysentery problems it's really messy so little spatters and spots around here and there not really something to be concerned about when it comes to excess storage of solids after a long period of dormancy you really can't do anything about that as beekeepers dysentery in bees is a somewhat confusing topic when beekeepers get together and recount the spatter that they see if you remember that bees simply were a capacity, especially as it relates to the solids they can hold, you will know what's behind it all. It's simple biology, and when a bee's got to go, a bee's got to go. Turning to topics, topic number one, I call this one cottage cheese. Circling back on the New Jersey Cottage Law legislation and providing an update, on the failure to amend the New Jersey cottage laws as they relate to the regulation of honey. Our New Jersey cottage law strategy, as far as it concerns honey, has turned out to be a little lumpy. Going back to the last few episodes, I mentioned that New Jersey passed a cottage law 
on October 4, 2021 for home-prepared foods and decided to include honey as a regulated product. The word on the street is that the perception, especially to beekeepers, of overdoing it got back to legislators in the time that it was passed and some of them took time to correct the situation and had taken action to reverse the stipulation and exempt honey. There was some optimism in December as bills A4580 and S73 were submitted to amend the cottage law and if it had passed would have resulted in honey being removed. But our optimism was dashed as we received notification from the New Jersey Beekeepers Association in early January that those bills had passed the Assembly and Senate were awaiting the governor's signature, which never came. For whatever reason, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy pocket vetoed the legislation and it's now off the books. Beekeepers will now have to reevaluate because the amendments they didn't pass. And I say that because I feel like beekeepers heard that the amendments were in play and assumed that if they procrastinated following what happened in October, they just might put this behind them. But we know now that that's not the case. It didn't get reversed. Evidence that the beekeepers did not get on board with the signing back in October can be seen in the data presented from the Department of Health website. The DOH had published a list of all the businesses that were officially registered And when perusing that list last week, I didn't see any signs of beekeeping businesses per the names listed. It sure seemed like all of the businesses when inspecting the names were in the home baker category. Now that it's been vetoed, I have to wonder what established and new home business owners are thinking. As to the failed bill, there is word from the NJBA that they're going to return to the same course of action and try to get the bill through. I kind of think it's an interesting dynamic in one sense, because why would you replay the same game plan and expect that the governor will not do the same thing? Kevin moment. I've been kind of thinking about that, and this is what I came up with. We're all focused on the honey constituent in that bill that we wanted to get reversed, but we have no idea, I don't, what was in the amendment and what they took in, took out. And it could have been something else that they objected to, and perhaps the next go-around will take that objection out and fix it. We don't know. End of Kevin moment. I can answer that Some chatter that I see amongst beekeepers discussing the topic. There's some speculation amongst beekeepers on the interwebs that there's merit to another go-around because in the state arena, some feel that the Department of Health is out of its jurisdiction, if that's the right word, as honey is an agricultural product and not, by definition, a prepared food. That is sure a beekeeping favorable point of view, probably not shared widely. And I only have to look to the laws of, say, New York, right next door, to notice that honey is provisioned in their cottage laws. Now, I saw a statement on Facebook that suggests that there's still hope that this will be reversed. Momentum, if you want to call it that. And 
I mentioned that the bill was pocket vetoed and that, quote, the bill would have expedited the honey exemption, a policy change that will happen anyway through health department rules, but only after a month's long process, end quote. That was posted the day that the thing was vetoed. And the origin of that statement is the January 21st newsletter of the New Jersey Farm Bureau. Now, I do hope that it's true and stumbled upon a more formal sounding interpretation of that same theme from a different place. Again, I saw this on Facebook. It seems to allude that the New Jersey Department of Health has an obligation to review what they included in the cottage law to see if it's still germane to being governed by cottage laws. That passage said, quote, It would require the DOH to periodically review the list of cottage foods enumerated in the bill, along with the current scientific literature, and provide the DOH with the authority to revise the list through administrative action. However, the amendments are not to be construed to authorize the DOH to regulate the production or sale of honey, the regulation of which will remain under the exclusive jurisdiction of the Department of Agriculture. End quote. Therein lies the rub. Some feel that just simply the inclusion in this cottage law is in contradiction with the Department of Health statement I just wrote, read to you. Now, perhaps these two statements lend credence that there are some official channels questioning the Honey's oversight by the Department of Health. At the core of the debate and distinguishing what seems to be at odds is if Honey is a food that is prepared or simply a food crop that's packaged for sale. Those words are my layman's words to describe my point of view of what's being deliberated upon. I still find this perplexing, and yet I can see the logic. How's that for a juxtaposition? Honey production in the home has not caused any major, or minor for that matter, problem in the marketplace. Yet the Department of Health has decided it needed to be regulated. Food safety is their business, and I guess, quote-unquote, in the best interest of the consumer. What's at stake, however, is of real concern to established and well, new businesses. I personally know beekeepers who do all of those things today. As of October, they are out of compliance with the law and theoretically they'll have to alter their beekeeping business practices to comply with the things that used to be allowed but are now restricted. What are they going to have to do to grapple with this? Use ourselves as an example. We just signed on to start an LLC to sell honey and we have to one, apply for a cottage food permit, cost of $100 every two years. Two, present a certificate issued by some accredited program that shows you are a trained food production manager and you must be in good standing when you present that certificate. Food manager courses set you back about $100 for that certification. You have to have your water tested if you have a private well, and we do. The cost of the water test varies and I've not really dug into it in specifics, but I saw some water tests online for New Jersey to be over $200, which makes me feel like it's not something I'm looking forward to know more about. The quick math shows us to be about three, $400 and more likely more when it's all said and done. 
When I covered this in early episodes, I do not recall getting into the specifics about the stipulations which must be abided by, and all of those beekeepers as of October are beholden to this. I'm going to take a moment to run a couple of these down. Do bear in mind that I'm not a lawyer. I'm just a guy who's reading the regulations and calling out the salient points as I've grasped them. So let's run it down. First, you're going to have to open your doors to spot inspections. I would speculate that this is going to be unlikely, but if someone decides you need to be checked out, you have to let them in to inspect your private kitchen in your residence and disclose how you run your operation. As I understand it, it would be enforced by a local health authority, meaning someone on the local board has jurisdiction over your municipality, county, or whatever it is in New Jersey. And then, you know, there's an interesting aside that strikes me personally about this, especially for a honey business. This is really meant for the home baker. That's what the cottage law generally has, but we're now in it. They're going to inspect your quote-unquote private kitchen in your residence. Mm, For reasons discussed at other times on the show, many people don't process their honey in their kitchen proper. How many of us are going to bring our extractors in the house? If you extracted, say, in a garage, do you have to bottle in the house? That would suck, by the way. Would that be okay that you extracted in the garage? Well, they're going to inspect that space, or do you have to physically run it in the kitchen, which is what's going to be... I have so many questions that need to be reviewed. What if somebody has a honey house on their property? Could that be allowed as a private kitchen in the operator's residence? These are all good questions, something probably doesn't really work and maybe you don't have to wrap yourself around the axle about them but they make me ask questions as another aside there are rules about the channels or venues you can connect with that's a better term where you could sell your honey seems to me that they're trying to infer some point in time situations let me explain that at any point in time there could be a street fair a town bake sale Things that seem to be pop-up in nature, but not something permanent. More permanently, maybe you could sell at a local farm market that runs every month, from your home, from a roadside stand at the end of your driveway. And you can sell through an online store with an asterisk. These operations have some limitations. Because you can either deliver the goods to someone or offer pickup but you can't ship. So if you have an online store, you're not allowed to ship. You could take those order, but they have to come and pick it up or you have to personally deliver it. You can't sell your goods to restaurants and they can't be sold through retail stores. You're not allowed to sell them through some sort of catering arrangement. And thinking about that, I wonder what that means for selling honey as a wedding favor, which is a pretty big industry for some people. You're not allowed to sell your goods in another state. Now, that one seems kind of, I don't worry that much about that, but this kind of in play for us because we live in a river town that borders Pennsylvania. We would not be able to, say, go a couple miles over the border there to a winner or New Hope trivial drive to sell at a farmer's market over there if that's something we wanted to do. 
You must conspicuously display an operator's cottage food permit at the point of sale if the sale is taking place at somewhere other than your baker's residence. You're not allowed to have consumption of goods allowed in the residence. I guess for us that's not that big of a deal. Your prepared food must be labeled in a specific way. And I guess this applies more to the bakers, but if you are packaging honey that has flavors mixed in it, it's going to apply. You have to have the ingredients. You have to list whether there's allergens. You have to list the ingredients in order and things like that. These are all properly good practices anyway, so I can't get too crazy about that. But I know that there's some beekeepers who may or may not follow these things. You got to have the municipality where the product was produced along with the words New Jersey or NJ on the package. And this is a stipulation I'm going to have to noodle over for our honey jars. We are to place a statement on the packaging or label that says, quote, this food is prepared pursuant to NJAC 8-24-11 in a home kitchen that has not been inspected by the Department of Health, unquote. I don't know how you put that on a honey jar without enduring putting another ugly label on it. I have an idea about this, which I'll talk about some other time, but, uh, hmm. I suppose one might consider to say, pishaw, I'm simply just going to ignore all this. And I would say that's not a prudent way to go. One of the stipulations in the law is that you have to prominently display your certificate. Say if you're at a farm stand, it would not be hard for someone to come along and know in an instant whether you're compliant or not. And given the law is new, I cannot fathom that the local health departments are not going to make the rounds this spring to see if home bakers, more so than honey providers, um, they're doing what the law now calls for them to enforce. I don't know how on board they are with this, but I can imagine if they're looking to see if somebody selling cupcakes is following this, why would they not stop at the honey stand over at the farm market? Sell a jar of honey here and there to your friends? Mm, you're breaking the law if you did not get this certificate. You know, that statement in itself is super disturbing if you're someone who does not take these things lightly. As a hobbyist beekeeper, this surely feels like one of those times where big government intrudes on small-time life. And, you know, you can really kind of begin to feel helpless about this. All at the time when we <laughs> were finally stepping into a venture to sell our honey on a small scales. Doesn't it figure? So if you're not in New Jersey, do you care about all this that I just told you? The actual answer is probably yeah. Because New Jersey, apparently, except for Pennsylvania, was the last one to get the cottage law. And I mentioned that honey is carried in New York, so maybe you need to know what the cottage law is where you are. A New Jersey beekeeper wrote to me and said, what does this mean when they saw that the thing was vetoed? Do I actually have to follow the rules of the thing? The answer is, yeah, <laughs> you do. So there's a lot of New Jersey beekeepers as they get into meetings this spring and learn about this thing and realize that they can't sit on their hands, they're going to have to take this into account. Uh, I don't know how many, what percentage of beekeepers sell their honey. 
And I also think that a lot of the local folks sell a jar here or there are probably not going to be on anybody's radar. But the fact of the matter is, you have to get informed. You should really be following the rules, as the letter is the law. And now you know some of the things in the background. For this show, I'll have a link to Governor Murphy Takes Action on Legislation. If you search for S73, 71, I don't remember the number, sorry, Cottage, you'll see the information that he vetoed it. Also have a link to a couple articles where it tells you more detail what these rules are in the show notes. Cottage cheese. That's all I got to say. Topic number two, the journey to Mead. This is about introducing a multi-episode feature on my quest to know how to make good tasting mead. You know, for many, life is simple if you let it be that way. But for some of us, mm -hmm, we might skew towards doing things in what might some consider the hard way. By my way of thinking, beer is quite drinkable and sometimes really pleasant. Wine, on the other hand, it's not too desirable, personally. It often tastes sour and tannic to my palate. Sometimes it's okay, pleasurable, but it's really a hit and miss thing for me personally. Mead, that too is hit and miss. Not that I don't like a good mead. Good mead is always a hit with me, but I've had some stellar meads and I've had some, I've had to smile my way through it, pretty awful glasses of mead. If you like to partake in alcoholic drinks, then mead is a very drinkable option and for beekeepers, a no-brainer to consider. An overarching principle, though, is of choices to make wine, beer, hard cider, and possibly other adult beverages. The sheer fact that honey is the base ingredient of mead distinguishes it from the other choices simply on the fact that honey is one of the most costly ingredients you could use to craft an alcohol, at least by my way of thinking, and it's awfully expensive to waste especially if the end result is not to your liking. One of my 2022 objectives is to crack the code, learn to make good mead. Good being the operative word. And as you might imagine by that declaration, I've dug in, started on a journey. Over the holiday break, I made quite an investment in time, developing a foundational understanding and I could sit here today with the notion that it was time well spent. I finally feel like I have a grasp of the difference and benefits between simply making mead and mead that is crafted following a nutrient regime, and more importantly, why one would do that. That knowing why was what was hampering me from committing to the experiment of the past let me talk about that for a moment. It's not that I wasn't incapable of following proper practices for cleaning, sanitizing, and assembling someone's recipe. But when you come to know a little bit about this, you come to learn that there are things you mess up along the way that will result in a less desirable outcome. Given my type A personality, I wanted to know more about what was happening while enjoying the process of immersing myself in the exploration. You know, the truth is, 
I don't think I would be capable of forgiving myself if I happened to take a perfectly good honey and make jet fuel out of it. So what did I learn? Yeah, frankly, there's enough to make your head explode. The more I peeled back the onion, the more I learned. In summary, equipment, cleaning agents, yeasts, assembly, complementary ingredients, calculators, mead-making terminology, monitoring, measuring, and procedures. It's just some of the items required for exploration on how to make a mead. One could really get lost doing research, and I will say straight away that a key resource that I used to get grounded was the Godmead website. They have something akin to a roadmap for getting started that was easy to understand, it was reasonably comprehensive, and it was well designed for someone like me that's trying to put it all together. Now there is of course a whole community out there of requisite websites, forums, Facebook pages, Reddit forums, and more. The Godmead website, it had a useful resource for fledgling mead makers that overviews the process, and I kind of like just staying to that structure for my exploration. Much of what you need to know was really well presented there, but I found there were times and things were missing for me, and I did look to other resources to fill my understanding. Given I went through quite a bit when studying for master beekeepers, in the realm of learning how to take notes, put things together, and make notations for follow-ups and such, I somewhat had a playbook for documenting my learnings on how to make mead, and took the time to structure what I wanted to learn, document my understanding. And, you know, I did that until I had a comfortable baseline that would provide a sound approach for making mead with a reasonable chance of success. How did it go? You know, actually pretty good. <laughs> I made enough progress to commit to making my first batch of mead and, well, it's fermenting as this is being recorded. I'll call that a placeholder and come back to that in a moment, but with the preamble out of the way, let me tell you about a plan. In my desire to be helpful, I had an idea that was the genesis of what I'm about to say. In the next few episodes, I'm going to spend some time at the end of the episodes for more information exchange. To be clear, I chose those words carefully as I'm not looking to confuse anyone that I'm trying to teach you how to make mead like somebody who's an expert. I think it's clear that I'm simply not qualified to do that. What I can do though is share what I learned and if you too find yourself interested in this topic, Maybe it'll spark you off, or you want to expand your background and are curious as to what someone else found, then this is for you. I plan to work through a number of background topics through the remainder of winter, and feel like this would be a good replacement for the local hive report, since it's usually thin this time of year and mostly on hiatus during the winter. What to cover? I'll start with in this episode, why not just honey and water? I'll cover the universal types of meads, the characteristics of meads, and some terminology for mead makers, ingredients, nutrients, and add-ins, oh my, the staggered nutrition concept, you can't talk about this without talking about yeasts, 
and it will tail off with the process of actually crafting the mead that I spoke about a moment ago. It's a full boat, and along the way I think there needs to be some latitude for how this progresses, and quite frankly we'll see where this takes us, but that's what I'm thinking as I sit here in this moment. I kind of think that perhaps along the way I might ask you for questions that remain unanswered and see if I can seek some true mead makers to step in and help us with our discovery. In the spirit of no better time than the present, I think the first objective, why not just honey and water, would be a good jump off point and set the stage for why my impressions about learning the rest of it in the deep down manner was a good way to go. So let's start there. Honey and water makes mead. I agree. True. It's a fact. Has been for centuries. <laughs> but the distinction between something called mead and a mead that is enjoyable to drink can be, you know, pretty wide. In short, making mead through a more prescribed process hopefully narrows the risk and improves the chances of making a mead that's enjoyable, drinkable. With more risky methods, the results can be described as excellent, good, adequate, not very desirable, or my favorite term, jet fuel. The thing is, as a beekeeper, that level of risk, where things are left to chance, they don't sit well with me, given how much effort is taken, the time involved, and my appreciation for what it takes to harvest local honey. Kevin moment. One quick aside about the prospect of risking your hard-earned cherished honey. I suppose one could look to a source of less expensive honey for mead. And in some cases, that actually might be the desired route. But it's kind of foolish not to consider that a beekeeper mm -hmm, would want to use their own honey to make their first journeys in mead. Now, of course, if you're making a buckwheat mead, and you don't produce buckwheat honey at home, then pragmatically you would go down the sourcing path and buy buckwheat honey. But let's assume for this first go-round, you're where we are, and you want to make a mead from your local harvest, and you have skin in the game to not screw it up. End of Kevin moment. So honey and water makes mead. What can go wrong? As it turns out, quite a bit. The real answer lies not in the fact that honey and water, if left to stew, will transform into mead in time. It's really that that transformation, for it to occur, there are other factors in play. Environment, bacteria, constituents in the honey, the type of honey, and oh yes, yeasts. It's the yeasts. It's the yeasts that are consuming the sugars. And in the solution, they're converting them to the product that is to become a spoiled elixir, vinegar, mead. Hard to say. As you might guess, yeasts are everywhere. and They're present in honey proper. If you've ever mixed water and honey together, say for feeding and lost track of it, you probably experience coming back to a fermented liquid been there and done that and every time it's happened the outcome was not very palatable i i do every once in a while i've done this mixed 
honey and water and left it and forgot it. And I always take a chance to taste it because it might be the best mead we've ever had. I think there's only one time I didn't say, hmm, this wasn't a bad sip. The rest of it also, you know, almost always tastes like vinegar or something awful. The most common tactic to get above this is to simply control what yeast is present in my way of thinking. High quality water, high quality honey, and a proper yeast will give you a better chance at a good mead. Now many books, websites, how-to guys will tell you that's all you need. In some respect, they're really not wrong. But a better chance is not very reassuring, is it? This is where you start to get to the crossroad or go down the rabbit hole as it is. At the center of mead making, and this is my impression after my little sojourn, yeast is the key. Maybe as I continue to learn that will change, but let me tell you why my impression is it's about yeast. First, quality water and honey, they're accessible. Now don't get me wrong, use the wrong water and your mead will be awful. I feel like, though, with a bit of knowledge, it's not hard to come by good water that has the right characteristics for mead. I mean, for what it's worth, I think you could probably go buy a gallon jug of Poland Spring if you think that's good water. I'll get to the aside of water with hardness and all that other stuff some other time. But for right now, as for honey, well, I'm a beekeeper. After a decade plus, I think I have more than enough access to good taste and quality honey. In fact, jars and jars of honey in the house. So, well, yeah, that's not a problem. But when it comes to yeast, that's kind of one of those pop quiz moments. Lalamand BA11. Is that a good yeast? What about Lalvin CY3079? Is that better than D71? Could it work better for the mead that I'm trying to make? Do you even know what I'm talking about? Because I didn't when I started. So yeah, you could mess up the water. You could mess up the honey. You could mess up the process. But with a little background, those things could be figured out pretty easily. But making mead is about honey and water and process and yeast. And in time, you'll come to know nutrients. And if we're going to figure this out, we have to go a little bit deeper. We are talking about why not simply honey and water. I've landed on yeast, but that still doesn't expound on what can go wrong and what yeast has to do with it. It seems to me that you have to ask, what is going wrong? Where do those bad flavors, sulfurs, acids, off flavors, tannins, and things that register as bad taste when taking a sip come from? The short answer is they're often a side effect of mishandling your yeast. Yeast is a living thing. It's a one-celled member of the fungus family and like anything else alive, it needs to eat. In our case, it's enjoying the sugars in the honey and anything that's a byproduct of its exchange is left behind. Coming back to Lalaman BA11 and Lalvin CY3079, those are specific strains of yeast produced by companies that have selected them for the close cousin to mead making, making wine. And like suggested earlier, 
yeasts differ because they're living organisms and they have some quality about them that make them a perfect match for the food being supplied, in our case, honey. If there's one thing to learn is that happy yeasts make happy mead. And you got to get close and cozy with your yeasts. You got to figure out what they really want. Oh, Kevin moment. I'll spare you the moment, but the song of What a Girl Wants by Christine Aguilera almost came out of my mouth there just a moment ago. <laughs> End of Kevin moment. What a yeast wants is what we all want. A pleasurable meal. If we were sitting down to eat a steak dinner, we might want a baked potato and a nice salad on the side. Yeasts are happy to partake in the sugars from honey, but like hot fudge on ice cream, what they would really like is a side of nitrogen and a few minerals. This is actually the divide between just honey and water and crafting a mead. Over time, mead makers have unlocked how to keep the yeasts happy through the fermentation process, and happy yeast results in happy meads. If you forego for a moment the notion of risk, that says honey and water is suitable, and you follow this further, you might be swayed to invest in the knowledge of how to craft a mead with the right process and ingredients to make a stellar mead. I will leave this right here and formulate a plan to come back to the rest of the story in upcoming episodes. The yeast part will come along as part of the journey and and I think I have a little bit more of an organized path as to what comes next. But I'm going to start with a short background on the types of meads and some terminology that will help us be grounded, get a baseline for the rest of the conversation to come. So consider, come along the journey of learning to make mead. We'll do it together and we'll see where it takes us. I'll have a link to the Godmead website in the show notes for this episode and some more links to share in future episodes. The Mead Made Right website, meadmaker.com, and others are out there and we'll get to them in due course. Topic number three for this episode, their journey to LLC. I'm going to preview what was involved in applying to be an LLC with specific details in the process and some commentary about starting a business to complement the topic. I think by now it's evident that we decided it was time to start a business. And you will come to note we chose to go the route of becoming a limited liability company or LLC. In truth, we did it because we think it's the way to go for selling honey, one of our primary business objectives. In short, this is kind of myopic and admittedly nearsighted thing to do concerning selling honey, as we're motivated to have some protection for our assets that we own as a family. Let's play pretend that somewhere, somehow, a honey jar that we are going to sell or sold gets dropped and it's chipped on the inside. Someone consumes the shard of glass and then sues us and looks to take the proverbial everything we own. Our rationale is that, well, the premise of a limited liability company 
is to limit one's liability. And why would we not go down the path of employing that tactic as it's designed? What I just shared is a super simplified variation of the three-year running discussion about choosing whether to go this route or not that Sharon and I had. And I can assure you that we've had dozen of, dozen, dozens almost of conversations over this. And, you know, there's other reasons why we chose to go down this direction. So the first thing to say about this is you have to judge personally whether it's the right move for you. And more importantly, you have to sign up for the rigor that is required for officially running a business. Specifically, and there's no avoiding this, there's required paperwork to remain compliant. And I suppose in time we could talk about the effort is required. And I think personally, it's going to take a while for me to become accustomed to what's in our future. So I can't speak to it in full detail. I'm kind of learning as we go. For now, I thought it would be interesting to disclose what steps we took to do the application and share out loud some of the mechanics. We, of course, are in New Jersey and applied through the New Jersey process. Some had said we could have LLC'd, I think I just made up a verb there, in the state of Delaware, as there's no taxes there. And yes, that might have been a prudent step. But for me, the simplest route is the easiest route. And I was able to go to a New Jersey website for these things and get the job done in short order. Now you get all these advertisements. This is a Kevin moment. Uh, you know, go on this thing, pay this money, get an LLC done. And I looked at some of the costs of those things. It pays to apply for an LLC and it pays to have LegalZoom or some of those other companies do it for you. I'm going to actually walk you through the process. And I think with a little bit of gumption, you can have the confidence to do this on your own. No legal zoom required, especially since the state of New Jersey has made it pretty much foolproof to follow it through and give you prompts and information and end of Kevin moment. Before I dig in, I'm going to share a little bit more of our origin backstory. The business required a name and we chose Sunshine Hill Farm. Sharon tells her of her childhood where she would go to Sunshine Hill to sled when she was a little girl. That's what they called the berm over at the neighbor's farm across the street from where we live. And we both agreed that it would make an appealing name for our fledgling honey company. We deliberated on the business name. And one thing that's kind of, you know, funny about it is it's probably one of the more discussed items over those dozens of conversations that we had. And we both really had to be happy with what we chose before we could pull the trigger. I think what cemented it for me is I played around with a bunch of designs for honey labels for our jars and actually have a Sunshine Hill honey label ready to go. And the design is going to be applicable to other products that we might consider. Like, let's say we make lip balms and things like that. And it really helped me to make a connection to it. The business is going to encompass a number of avenues by our way of thinking. In fact, here we go. This is the first Beekeeper's Corner podcast that will be a Sunshine Hill Farm production. 
the podcast and some of my training and other things, I think it all will kind of now be business expense and some of those things that we will do to try and render a profit and recoup some of our expenditures. I do think there will come a day when I can make other Sunshine Hill Farm productions, podcasts, spinoffs, or, you know, things that I have ideas for, all in good time. And did I mention that I'm counting the days to retirement for my corporate job and imagine if I had free time to toil? But I digress, LLC. And let me say first off, the process wasn't too hard, but it did require some attention to detail. And you kind of need to take your time and work your way through it and answer those questions that pop up along the way and make your decision points. And I'm going to jump right in and take you on the journey as promised. So the first thing, high level steps, you have to declare your business type and your tax implications. Understand that. It starts with what type of company you want to establish. A company can be a single person doing simple things or something more complex, say a multiple person operation, one that is a partnership between two or more people, has employees, disperses a payroll, collects taxes, and so on. For my example, I set up a sole proprietorship for now, and I can always change that and expand later. But let me talk about one dynamic as I understand it, and that concerns an internal revenue service employee identification number, or EIN. Single owner companies can run a business and come tax time, any profits that can be processed on that person's personal income. Say that a different way. The IRS considers a single member LLC to be a sole proprietorship and the named member that's an important concept, named member, is responsible for reporting the income as well as profit or loss on a personal 1040 along with any other required evidence of business transactions. And they come in the form of IRS tax forms, Schedule C, E, and or F. This, of course, is the case if a single member is truly single and does not have employees. If you have employees, you're going to be required to obtain an IRS EIN number. Because companies that have co-owners and or employees will need a different tax structure, hence the need for the EIN. EIN, it's not too dissimilar from like a tax ID. In layman's terms, it names a single individual in an LLC as a member going to keep hearing this member thing come up and keep in mind that companies be can be single member LLCs or multi-member LLCs. Multi-member LLCs will have a special form with the IRS that stipulates how much money is attributable to each member and then each member reports their share of, share not sure share of earnings on their 1040 tax return filing along again with all their requisite deductions, credits, and so forth. You know, one quick aside, to obtain an EIN, I found it strange, you do it online, and ironically, you only can do it Monday through Friday. Now, the first official step 
to an official business is filling out a state form for New Jersey. Let me walk through the business formation process. And, you know, this is going to be like instructions on how to fill out a form. Uh, sorry, I know. But it does kind of outline the process and I could use it illustratively to talk about the considerations you have along the way. So we'll give it a shot. Here's the New Jersey process. Step one, business type and name. The first step starts with a form that sets what kind of business you want and what the business name will be. Two items are requested. The type of business to be formed and a declaration of business name. The first part of the form allows you to choose what type of business and you click a drop down and there's a bunch of different choices. Corporation, LLC, and so on. In our case, we chose the New Jersey Domestic Limited Liability Company, which is also an LLC. For the second part of the form, it allows you to enter a business name and test it. When you choose continue on this part of the process, it'll do some cross-reference to look and see if the name you entered exists or is in conflict with someone else's business name that already is there. If it is, it's going to show you the names that came before and suggest you chose another name. If it's not, you get this congratulatory statement that informs you your name is available. You're allowed to proceed to step two, which is the business designator. The next part's a little odd in that you could choose how the LLC is designated. And my guess is it's probably legal binding when appended to the name you choose. Let me explain that. Examples include the letters LLC or the second option is L period, L period, C period. Third option is limited liability company, fully spelled out. Then there's limited liability co and a few other options. You get the gist here is you have to pick which one. I chose LLC. And what that means is our business is going to be Sunshine Hill Farm LLC. No periods, no spelled out, whatever. Whenever you write and represent your name of your business, it needs to match that for tax purposes. So think carefully because that's what people are going to see when you write your name out for your business that you choose. Step three is about business data. There's two areas of this one. First one is business information. Several items are requested in the business data, business information area. You'll supply EIN, NAICS code, duration and effectiveness of effective date of the business. And you know, it looks daunting. The reality is it supplies the effective date, meaning born on date, if you want to choose to think of it that way, by inserting the current date that you fill in the form out and you really don't have to fill out the other fields. So I'll say though, still it's reasonable want to know what they are and they have little information icons that you can click on and read them. We spoke of the EIN earlier. If you have an IRS EIN number and you want to provide it, you can. In my case, we don't have any employees. So I didn't apply for one at the time I was submitting my business. The NAICS code. This associates your business with the classification system known as the North American Industry Classification System. If you happen to go online, you can find different codes representing various industries. And there are some for beekeepers. 
After doing this process, I saw several questions on Facebook for people who were submitting for business. Universally, this is the one that many people got hung up on. They wanted to know what code to use for their business. I didn't know what the codes were, and it's not evident like you could scroll through them, but you could type a keyword and hit search and related ones come up. So I found 112910 for Honeybee Production. I found 311999 for Honey Processing. And you get the gist. I'm guessing there's more of them. Given that we're going to be doing those things and more, I also found what I think is the catch-all, 112910. It carries the title of Apiculture, and by its description, professes that if you're going to be engaged in raising bees, honey sales, queen bees, wax, propolis, and other beekeeping pursuits, then you could use this one. The field in the New Jersey form is optional, but for giggles, that's what I put in my form. 112910 Apiculture. The duration field... I don't know why this is here. You could specify, I guess, if your business is only going to be in duration for a short while. In our case, we're not planning any end date, so you just leave it blank. That will signify that the business is indefinite until you declare a closure. The effective date, I spoke about that. Just leave whatever they put in there. Business purpose. The next form continues the business data collection by asking for the business purpose. At the bottom, you click on a button and you have 300 words to be able to describe what your business does. Our business will be selling honey, possibly bees, and doing beekeeping education along with, you know, the podcast and things like that. If 300 words is not enough, they have an option there where you can click description upload and they'll give you the ability to upload a file to attach with your business description. Now you might say, well, do I need to do that? I don't know. Somewhere along the line, and this came up for my search on businesses, I found a name. This is a sidebar. I found a name of a company that I wondered if it was a bee business. When looking up who registered for the cottage law. And I used this system to look up that business and I read the description and determined they weren't a bee business because the person had updated a descriptive file. So I guess, you know, if somebody's looking at your business and trying to figure out what they do, this is where they can learn what that is. Another piece of information you provide is your mailing address. It's your street address, just as you would imagine. There's a thing called registered agent information. And the next bit of information you're going to provide is who is the main contact for the business. As just stated, the term for this is called a registered agent. And the registered agent has a couple things to it. The role, and it's really important to understand it. This is the person, or in some case the organization, that's authorized to receive service of process notices, official governing, government correspondence, and any other compliance-related documentation on behalf of the business. In my case, since I'm single, I'm the one. All the stuff will come to me at my address. You have to have one named person 
to legally operate in any state. They want a person's name, email address, and street address. And my guess is likely notices will be emailed to you and then snail mailed to the recipient for any of the business operations where they have instructions for you to follow. You can at this point go to the members manager section and supply any other members. This is where you will add the name of a second member or a partner or multiple members for the LLC. And of course they want all the contact information. The next part of the process is about articles of organization. And I'll talk about the AOO purpose. In the articles of organization section, you provide additional information about your LLC. In the case of the application, we had already specified things like email address, registered agent, and a few other details, but maybe you want to specify something like a post office mailing address in addition to a physical address. This is the place where you can append more information about your business. And you could think of articles of organization as add-on supporting evidence and information about your business. I didn't have anything to add, so I just moved right past this section. There's a couple formal things that have to take place in order to complete the form. Signatures. This is the last part of the form prior to submitting it to the state. Signatures allow you to specify the intent to file the LLC, and in my case, I supplied my name as the authorized representative. Whoever's name you supply is the person that's going to sign for your business going forward. It, it's something where you have to check the box and post that the signature is the signature of the company. And the interesting thing is if you wanted to add more, there's a means by which you can add up to 10 signatures to the filing. That's it. Uh, you click next, there's a review and approve, and it ends with a summary to tell you all the choices that you made. You can interact with the screen and confirm all your choices before going on. You can go back and change things. And then what's left, make your payment. The fee for filing in New Jersey is $125. When you're at this stage, you have some options, including one that I opted for, which was to have them provide me a certificate certified copy. The cost of this is an additional $25. There's some additional fees for processing and all in all, the total cost for the business was $155.50. You know, I wonder if that's deductible on my taxes. I bet it is and I can ask our accountant. I clicked the button to submit and voila, the transaction was successful and we are now an official LLC. So one thing to note is that your documentation will provide you with an entity ID. This number is something you're going to want to track and keep handy as it's pretty much going to be associated with your business for time to come. That's it. And so if you recount that stuff, most of the stuff was fairly basic. You're just making a bunch of declarations and you can become an LLC. Now to operate as an LLC, there's obviously more to it. 
Uh, you probably need a bank account. You need to keep your finances separate. And let me spend a moment about the EIN number. If you try to open a business account, and by the way, from what I've learned, don't use a personal account. You should really open a dedicated business account. It's just the way the world should work based on everything that I've read. Um, I did not supply an EIN number, but I needed one to open a bank account. So I went and filled out the form. Now, I think I did this over the holiday break. Um, timing escapes me as to when. But I did subsequently go apply for the EIN number and was actually able to use some of the LLC information in applying for that. That's it. I'm going to stop right there and say that's the beginning of the business for us. Uh, we will probably look to put more information on our honey jars and other things about the business that we operate. Um, now with the cottage law that we spoke about earlier, I, I'm not sure what all the implications are. I don't know if I need to reach out my township and tell them what we're doing. Township doesn't permit businesses from home. So even though I am officially a state represented business in LLC, I do kind of have to figure out what the municipality, you know, I don't believe I can go set up a farm stand at the end of the driveway if I really wanted to. I think ultimately, you know, if Sharon wants to sell a jar of honey at a farm stand, if she wants to uh, sell one to friends or people who say, you know, we heard you sell honey, I want to sell jars at work or whatever, we're now a business. That and the $155 gets us an LLC. <laughs> but, you know, I, I do, again, think that at some point, if I, let me take this a little bit further and stop being goofy about it. There's a podcast in my future that will have advertisements. When we get paid by businesses, I can deposit that in a check. Taking money through, say, a PayPal account or something like that is a little dodgy. Eventually, the IRS could come back and say, all of that stuff you've been collecting is actually a business on the side, and we want to tax that or do whatever they want to do with it. Uh, the Boy Scout in me says, at some point, if we get to legit business and making money, we should be doing it on the up and up. So this sets the stage for those things that never really got serious about, but we do feel like it's going to go that route in our future. Now, was this of interest to you? I don't know if it was, and you had questions that I didn't consider or things that you hear. Um, send a note in Kevin at bkcorner.org. At minimum, you get to hear that that's what the LLC thing is all about. Now there's S corporations and you know, all that other uh, types that you could choose not prepared to talk about that. Don't know much about it. And I'm uh, quite honestly, I think what I've done is right, but um, all new to this. So we'll see how it goes. Sunshine Hill Farm. How cool is that? Like the name. Looking forward to getting used to it, saying it more as we go through and get our business underway. Roundtables, topics, done. Down to the bottom of the pile. Time to turn to the local hive report. 
Sometimes this time of year we get a lot of new listeners, might wonder what this is about. At the end of the episode, we kind of do a run-through of what's going on with our hives on our property. At this juncture, sitting in the beginning of February, not a lot going on. It's 20 degrees outside. It's been in the low teens. You know, we had a little tease in January where we had some flying weather. And, you know, just about the holiday break was the last time I saw an active pattern. Every hive made it through last year. Not going to be able to repeat that this year. Sorry to report that hive number 12 out of commission. Uh, swarm we captured last year did really well. Made a lot of honey for us this year. Got treated with you know, Formic Pro and and also Apivar this summer. Uh, not quite sure what was going on there, but uh, it's out of commission. Didn't see that one flying. Everything else was, I have this sense, and I'm not sure why. Maybe I'm a little bit of a Debbie Downer here that it's not going to be a good year. Uh, the reason I say that, I want to think I was cautiously optimistic going into fall, but you know, the queens that we put together this year, most of them were made from some of our queen rearing activity, a couple swarms that we captured. That's what's out in the yard. And I don't know. I just don't have a good warm and fuzzy feeling about things. Now, I stepped outside this afternoon to take a look. And even at, uh, I think it was 35, almost to 40 degrees in the bright sunshine peak of the day, only one hive was flying. Guess what? <laughs> Polystyrene hive, 10 frame, looked good. The bees were just out poking around, doing cleansing flights and things like that. Everybody else was kind of buttoned up, no sign of any activity. Now, I walked from hive entrance to hive entrance with a hive tool, and I cleared out any dead bees. And to me, that's a good sign. And let me explain what I mean by that. On those days where I'm working or not paying attention and the bees get some flying time, the undertakers will try to bring out any dead bees. And as soon as the weather breaks, that's one of the first major activities you'll see. So it's not uncommon at this time of year to see some dead bees at the entrance of the hives. Most of the hives that I checked, there were dead bees at the entrance. That means that some sort of activity was going on not too long ago. And let me distinguish that. I'm not talking about stick the hive tool in the entrance and scrape and pull out, because those are the bees that have just succumbed to winter. I'm talking about bees that are out on the landing. Uh, they have to be brought out there. They don't just fall down and crawl their way out. So what do we got going on? Honestly, I don't know. I thought about this afternoon taking the FLIR camera, but in the bright sunshine it's not a way to go so i'll wait for the first cloudy day i have this kind of really weird thing which is i don't know if i want to know uh i'm basking on the glory that the last time i looked at everything in the broodminders and such everything looked good now i was talking to bob Kloss, who can see my broodminders and i happened to notice that one of my eight frame polystyrene hives that i'm trying to overwinter with this year didn't look right to me on the sensors uh, the temperature was going up and down. Now, it's a little too early. And let me say this. When you have temperature sensors in your colonies, you'll realize that they get started on their brood production for spring a little earlier than one might think. I want to say middle to late February, March. Sometimes 
middle of March. It all depends on the weather and where you are. For us, it's usually like March 1st to March 15th. So we'll see. Uh, you know, I, I would say this, and I say it with a smile on my face. As long as something makes it through, we'll be good to go. Um, I've had years where everything makes it through, like last year, and I've had years where only a handful of, you know, a large subset of colonies made it through, and we know how to split, we know how to do our thing to get back to normal. Um, one of the things that I knew is on the horizon that I've talked about in previous episodes is queen rearing, and in conversations for that plan, it's time to get that going. Uh, Got to figure out how I'm going to do it, where I'm going to do it, why I'm going to do it, and probably talk about that coming up. Local High Report, really not much to say. Uh, hopefully things are okay there, and the next two to three weeks will tell the tale. When we get a couple flying days of weather, I'll be able to jaunt outside and just see if everything is going. Or, you know, somewhere along the line, uh, I'll find a time to break out my sensor and go out and scan the hives and see what the the FLIR tells me. It It's to the point where it's not going to be about food or anything else. If the hive succumbs, it's probably going to be illness and such, and there's not much I'm going to do about it. So, uh, look, I'm, I am going to keep an eye on things. It makes it sound like I'm neglectful, and that's not the case. Uh, as soon as we get a warm day, I'll be out assessing things, and... If some sort of remediation is required, I'm sure I'll figure out what the steps are and like always take those choices. Now, not a lot to say during these uh, winter months, but if this is new to you, typically we'll do a rundown of what our hives are, what our plans are, what we're seeing, what we do about it. And you can learn quite a bit about beekeeping just by plugging into the local hive report. So uh, hopefully these will become they're, they're one of my favorite parts of this show, but, you know, in the winter months, they're a little anemic. Local Hive Report, check. Just a couple closing comments to share, and we'll wrap this up. I know we've gone pretty long today. So time to close this down. To, uh, one quick note. A new year, a new computer for me. It's been a long time since I built a new personal computer. And while it got off to a bumpy start, it is now clear sailing. I recently had to reinstall the operating system and changed out my sound. And I'm hoping that you'll recognize through this recording that the sound quality for this podcast, it only took 200 plus episodes to get it right, is sounding really, really uh, outstanding. And I'm so happy to finally achieve that milestone. Turns out it wasn't me. <laughs> the previous machine and the, uh, how do I say this without sounding techie, the microphone went through a device that aided in porting the sound into the computer, swapped that device out, and it cleared everything up considerably. One thing I haven't figured out, as you just heard the little blurb, is all these things that have sounds that just keep popping through. So if you hear that in the podcast, forgive me. We're a one-man band around here, but it should make producing the shows a lot better. And hopefully, for those of you listening through earbuds, uh, it's going to sound a lot better and a lot cleaner. 
I just wanted to say this is the time of year where we typically try to take in whatever shows lead up to springtime. Uh, we go to the Philly Guild. We go to Chester County. Uh, Carroll County has been killing it with uh, their programs. And there's still a lot of stuff going on online. I saw something from Sa uh, Saskatchewan and <laughs> places. Do get plugged in. I will be doing a beginner's beekeeper course. Bob Kloss and I are tag teaming for RVBA sometime in March. Have a swarm talk coming up for Mid-State. And this is the time of year where people start to tap us on the shoulder and ask us if we can help do some training and talks and such. And uh, looking forward to getting out. I guess some of those will be virtual and some of those may even be in person. We'll see what becomes of the whole COVID situation. Last year... We were in the throes of COVID in wintertime, and it kind of eased up for summer. I'm not sure if it's leading that way again, but, uh, you know, I'll know when we're there, when we have the opportunity to go outside on those warm days and start taking inventory in the garage and figuring all that out. And Yeah, looking, it's, it's so close. I can taste it, feel it. It's funny because... It felt like winter dragged on forever, and now it feels like spring is rushing right up to meet us, and we're right around the corner. If you're a beekeeper in your first year or your 10th year, this is the time of year where we all get excited and look forward to it. And I wish you the best. Uh, send me a note if you have something you want to talk about, want to get covered. Kevin at BK Corner, and I think this is as good a time as any to say, like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody, and happy 2022.